This program is brought to you by listener support and a donation from All Street Studios. All Street Studios is having an art party for friends and supporters on Saturday, July the 24th from 7pm. There'll be music by jazz group Bags Fly Free, food and drink from local restaurants, plus a silent art auction. Tickets are available online at allstreetstudios.com and also at the door. You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you'll stay with me for the next hour as we take a festival-specific tour of the arts. Each summer since 2010, the Mizzou New Music Initiative has held its Mizzou International Composers Festival, featuring a small handful of up-and-coming composers who, once selected, compose a work to be performed by the internationally acclaimed new music ensemble Alarm Will Sound. The week-long festival includes world premiere performances, presentations, workshops and other ensemble concerts. And the 2021 iteration of the festival opens next week. So on this week's show, we are going to go behind the scenes with the festival's managing director, Jacob Gottlieb, as well as chat with three of this year's resident composers, each of whom brings with them a world of personal and cultural influences. This is always one of my favourite shows to make each year. So if you're ready... Let's take a deep dive into the world of a new music composition. I love that the man who is in charge of pulling together all the various strands of the Mizzou International Composers Festival started his musical journey being a fan of metal music and pioneering electronic music, all of which was possibly nails down a chalkboard to his conservatory-trained classical pianist mother. Since starting his musical journey, Jacob Gottlieb has acquired degrees from the prestigious Oberlin Conservatory, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a doctoral degree from the University at Buffalo. He is a musician, an educator, and a composer of works that explore patterning and repetition within electronic music. And he is also the managing director for the Mizzou New Music Initiative, the annual apogee of which is the Mizzou International Composers Festival, which this year takes place from July the 26th to the 31st and it is my annual treat that I get to chat with Jacob on Speaking of the Arts. Good morning Jacob and welcome back. Good morning Diana, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. So did your mum frequently yell at you to turn down your blasting of Nine Inch Nail albums? (laughs) Only occasionally you know and uh, I'm very lucky because my mom, she does have a very different kind of training. She's from the former Soviet Union. And so, you know, they didn't have a lot of this stuff uh, over the Iron Curtain during that time. But she recognizes when music is 
technically and compositionally sophisticated and well-performed. So the first band I was ever really into was Metallica at age seven. I loved Metallica. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got into other metal later on, but my mom always really liked Metallica because she could recognize the sophistication in that music. And it wasn't too screamy. <laughs> so she she could follow along with the melodic with the, with the melodic characteristics of it. So maybe that answers partly my next question, which was given that you decidedly had a kind of a rock and alternative alternative musical taste growing up, how come you went the conservatory route of education rather than going to LA with a keyboard or sending Aphex Twin your demo tapes? Maybe you <laughs> well, did that too. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I had his address, I certainly would have. But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up playing metal, but I was also grew up being classically trained. You don't, <laughs> you're, not, you're not really a first generation immigrant of parents from the Soviet Union if you don't take piano lessons. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, my mom enrolled me in piano lessons from age seven and I started playing guitar at age 10. So my, my interest and background in both classical music and rock music were simultaneous. So it's, it's not that I grew up playing rock music and then I somehow discovered classical music. They were both part of my background. And the particular conservatory that I went to, Oberlin, it had a program for music technology and electronic music composition as part of the conservatory. So that was obviously really appealing to me. And that program was really interesting in how it fit in with the rest of the conservatory because so many of the other departments at that school at the time were much more traditional. But in the electronic music program, that's where all of the weirdos and experimentalists <laughs> like me went. <laughs> Well, I always credit you with helping me to appreciate contemporary new music, which can sometimes resemble more of a wall of cacophony <laughs> rather than our traditional idea of harmonic music. And whilst I often do not like the sounds, by not thinking them as music, as you taught me, I am able to experience them as evocative. So when you are introducing contemporary compositions to students or new audiences, what are some of the things you tell them to listen for? Well, the one thing that I say is that, you know, while a lot of these composers do maybe carry on the legacy of the great classical Western composers like Bach and Beethoven and Mozart in some way, what a lot of them are trying to do is trying to redefine the conventions of music. So what can a melody really be? How many different things can it be? What can a rhythm really be? How many different kinds of ways can we think about rhythm or what kinds of sounds can we use in music and still call it music? Does it have to be the sounds that we're used to or can it be any other kinds of sounds? So the idea behind a lot of this music and a lot of what drives contemporary composers is to push at the definitions of music itself. How far can we take what we know about music and turn it around but still think of it as music, if that makes sense. You told me to think of it like a soundtrack to a movie. So when I listen to it, I close my eyes and I try to imagine where it's taking me rather than thinking, oh, I don't like this tune. I think, what am I reminded of? I think that's really a helpful way to listen to it. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, because each each composition has its own journey and has its own shape. And maybe that's not a conventional shape or a conventional journey, but it is one nonetheless. And if you take the time to invest in the listening and invest in letting the music take you on this journey, more often than not, it's going to be rewarding, even if it's not what you predicted or expected. <laughs> 
So last year there was no festival because COVID, and this year you are back, kinda. Talk us through this year's new music festival. Well, actually, there was a festival last year. We oh. did have a we did have a festival with two events. One of them was a drive-through event in the parking lot of the Sinkfield Music Center. We got a big screen and we projected pieces of video art, and that was curated by my colleague Carolina Heredia. And then we also had a concert of pre-recorded works that Alarmal Sound, Mizuno Music Ensemble, and the Kimia Ensemble had put together remotely. So it was a real challenge to pivot this way and reconfigure the festival for a fully remote environment. None of the musicians could rehearse in the same room together, so we used technology to stitch things together. Everybody recorded their videos over Zoom and iPhone, and we worked with some video technicians to help edit the videos together. So in the end, we did have two concerts for a festival last year. And it, it was a very different kind of festival and we'd never done anything like that before. And this year is sort of a kind of hybrid between last year and the year before. So we're taking a tentative step back towards, uh, I guess you could say normal or how the festival used to be. So on the one hand, the, the performances are still not open to the public live as they would be normally. You can watch them online and stream them from our Mizzou New Music Initiative Facebook page or the Mizzou School of Music YouTube channel. But we do have all of the musicians here on campus in person. So they're going to be set up here in the new Singfield Music Center, and they're going to rehearse with the composers over Zoom. And then we are going to video record their performances and recordings to be broadcast on the live stream in the evenings. But the composers are not here. No, the composers are not here, unfortunately. And we, we thought at first that maybe we could have them here. But, you know, this is an international festival and we've got composers from all over the world and the vaccination statuses of different countries are very different than ours. So not all of the composers would be able to get vaccines in time to travel internationally. So because of that, we thought to make it fair, this year the resident composers will participate remotely with the hopes that next year we could have a, a fully in-person festival like we had before. Now, because you didn't have a regular festival last year, and so you didn't have that composer component this year, you are combining some of last year's composers, and then you have a new set of composers this year, but only four of them this year. So, so as you have more composers than usual, you have two world premiere performance evenings, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, in a traditional festival, Alarm Will Sound performs two concerts. The first one in traditional years typically features the music of the guest composers, um, the distinguished guest composers who this year are David Little and Chen Yi. And then the second concert is normally all the world premieres of the eight resident composers. Well, this year, because we have a, some more resident composers than normally do, because as you said, some of the folks from last year are back again this year, we thought we would split it up so that a few of the resident composer pieces are on the first concert, which is Tuesday, July 27th, and then the rest will be on the Saturday, July 31st event. Okay. Now, your roster of composers is refreshingly diverse. How much is blind audition part of your selection process and how much are you looking for specific voices and experiences? 
we don't have a blind audition process for this particular program. So when we review the applications, we, we see everything. We see the composer's names, where they studied, what their music is like, you know, and we take all of that into consideration. We, we have a number of criteria that we use to select the composers. Generally, we have maybe 325, 350 applicants per year. And from that, we, we narrow it down. So we think about their musical voices, their, their you know, aesthetic predispositions. We think about uh, who they are, their background, what school they go to, what their experiences are, and what they're contributing into the field of contemporary music based on both their artistry and their backgrounds. So using all of these criteria, we work really, really hard in the judging process to try to find, you know, a really diverse group of composers. And so I'm very glad that you think we're successful in that. Well, I mean, it's amazing that you go from 350 down to eight, because they are all exceptional. I I can't imagine the conversations that go on. And I guess the disagreements that go on about who should be chosen. I mean, (laughs) that's a big process. It, it is a very big process. And, you know, I, I know firsthand because I am part of the judging panel for at least the first round. So it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult to go through all of these applications and make these decisions because there are a lot of really strong voices out there. And, you know, we wish we could feature as many of them as possible, but we have to we have to we have to manage our own workload. And frequently people apply to the festival multiple times. And uh, so we recognize names from one year to the next. And so we remember, oh, this person was very strong last year and we really wanted to do it, but we couldn't we couldn't take them. So maybe we'll take them this year, for example. So that that happens relatively frequently, too. This is the 11th year for the festival. How has it changed over the past decade? Well, it's the 12th. Uh, last year last year was the 11th. Okay, I wasn't including last year because, you know, it wasn't festival uh, okay. proper. <laughs> yeah. Festival light. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so in, in that case. Well, so um, how, how has it changed? Well, we're always trying to, I guess, represent... Uh, what is the current pulse of contemporary music right now? So we're always kind of looking for, uh, first of all, to improve you know, our own criteria as far as choosing a diverse roster of composers, but also we're always looking for the most comprehensive representation of what is going on in the field of international contemporary music right now. And so as the sort of aesthetic field shifts over the years, we try to reflect those shifts in, you know, the composers that we select as well. And, you know, these last couple of years have obviously thrown us a curveball because of COVID. But in 2019, our last, I guess, in-person festival, we were really proud of the way that we expanded the programming. We added new concerts. We added community events. We did pop-up concerts on the street. And most importantly, we made all of the events absolutely free. So last year and this year, unfortunately, we couldn't build on those kinds of expansions the way we'd wanted to. But hopefully next year, we will continue to be able to build out and just make it a more diverse, a more expansive and more uh, community-oriented festival, the way we had been going before COVID made us have to rethink everything. But one thing that is the same is that all the concerts are free. There is no ticket price that you need to pay online. No tickets. No tickets whatsoever. Just click on the Facebook link and or click on the School of Music YouTube page and you can see it all. 
Perfect. Well, Jacob, thank you once again for putting together such a fascinating festival and for sharing your insights with me. You have turned me from someone who is indifferent to new music to someone who is now perpetually intrigued and curious. So thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. The educator in me is very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's always such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Nina Shaker's bold and personal works explore the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love and laughter and reflect her identity as an Indian American woman and a neurodiverse person. Her works have been described as vivid by the Washington Post and as having surprises and delights aplenty by the LA Times and have been commissioned and performed by orchestras, ensembles and vocalists across the country. She is the winner of multiple composition awards and is the 2021 composer in residence for the Young Concert Artists, which promotes the careers of young musicians of distinction around the world. And she's also a performing artist on flute, piano and saxophone. Nina Shekhar, it is a delight to have you on this week's show. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Diana. There is so much to cover in our short time together today that I scarcely know where to start. I spent hours down the rabbit hole of your music and your story, and I feel like anything short of a six-part series on you would be doing you a disservice. And one of the many things that jumped out at me was that you have dual undergraduate degrees in music composition and chemical engineering. How did you end up pursuing dual degrees at such opposite ends of the education spectrum? <laughs> yes, I, well, I, to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't get much sleep <laughs> that degree. So that's probably logistically how that happened. But um, yeah, you know, a lot of that was stemming from, you know, as an Indian American, I think there's so few um I think Asian Americans in general in in the arts and and so my parents are really worried about having me pursue a career in the arts just because they hadn't seen many Indian Americans be successful in the the field of western classical music and so they were afraid for my financial security and wanted me to do a a chemical engineering degree and so it was kind of a compromise at first but then eventually I learned to to love it, you know, and having these two really disparate interests. And, you know, I always think in terms of the way that I, I see issues nowadays, even that I try to represent in my music, I, I really feel like having that technical engineering background gives me a way to look at those issues from another angle. I always talk about like the Flint water crisis and because I grew up in Michigan and the way that artists were looking at it was more to, you know, raise funds and how to help people financially. But, you know, the way engineers were looking at it was like what was actually happening technically, you know, what was corroding all the pipes and by changing the water source. And so having that background in, in two different fields just allowed me to see it from a really holistic way. I think the nexus of arts and science is so fascinating in the way that the arts have an incredible capacity to illuminate and explain scientific concepts. And if you look at a lot of the science festivals that happen around Europe, they all have a profound artistic component that go with them. So I think you're definitely onto something. Have you used your musical knowledge in any way to illuminate any facets of chemical engineering? 
You know, I'm trying. That's something that I've been wanting to explore, especially you mentioned earlier that I identify as being neurodivergent and I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And so a, a project that I've been wanting to do has been involving beyond just visuals and, and sound, but also incorporating heat and light and, and other aspects, which is where I want to use my engineering background also. And the field of bioarchitecture and bio arts is so fascinating also. And I think is really the future for thinking about sustainability, just even in our everyday world. So I, I think that that's somewhere that I am hoping to move in that direction soon. So you grew up with OCD, as you said, and, and whilst it has caused you a lot of suffering and anxiety, it also gave you an ability, a more acute ability to tap into empathy and compassion. How has your OCD shaped your music? Mm, yeah, that's definitely true. You know, I really feel that Part of the power in, in neurodivergence, um, you know, and obviously that's such a big umbrella term and includes many different identities. But for me, it, it really gave me a way at understanding other people's experiences just because I think also part of the nature of OCD is that you overanalyze everything. <laughs> and so like I would really think hard about the way that I was having an impact on the people around me and vice versa. And a lot of my compulsions, to be honest, were stemmed out of a place of love, you know, a place of me wanting to protect other people because that's kind of how my OCD manifested itself. And so for me, I think even in, in my work, I really try to explore the intersection of my identity with everybody else's. And it's really important to me to really make use of that fertile ground in between me and another person and really understand their experience and maybe have them understand my experience and really have that dialogue. And so I think having growing up with OCD has really helped me in a, in a weird way, even though it definitely caused me a lot of suffering and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I think it helped me really understand other people's experiences. You wrote a piece a few years ago called Quirkhead, which I have listened to over and over because I do not have OCD. But in listening to this piece of music, you gave me the sensory experience, the emotion of I guess to some degree what you what you felt, and it gave me such a window in a way that I've never heard another piece of music give me that window into someone else's experience. Talk a little bit about Quirkhead for us. Mm, that's so kind of you to say. Yeah, that piece was, um, I think, one of the first pieces that I wrote that was really just very personal. And I think the environment of how I wrote it and the, the ensemble I, I initially wrote it for was a group called Third Angle which is based in Portland, but they were such kind people. And it was under the guise of a program led by a woman named Gabrielina Frank, who's a really wonderful composer. And it was such a kind environment. Everybody cooked food for each other, <laughs> you know, in the workshops for this piece that I felt safe enough to kind of share my experience. And um, with that piece, you know, in the beginning, it begins with the, the singer saying things like dog to the left, fish to the right, and all these funny expressions. But really what that is, is, is it's stemming from 
one of the experiences I had in middle school where a teacher of mine saw that the way I was writing words, the, like the way I see words is and letters is that I associate them with different connotations and I like left better than right. So then certain words I'll write more to the left and certain mm. words I'll write more to the right. And the teacher noticed that and that was one of the first instances of somebody else noticing that, oh, maybe I, I might have OCD. And so in that piece, it's kind of exploring a lot of these compulsions, but also just kind of the emotional aspect of it and me wanting to protect other people and not really knowing how to do that and, and if it was true or not, like these beliefs that I was having. And it was a really vulnerable piece. And it's honestly the first piece that I really did that was exploring myself so deeply. beautiful the arts for all that we think we're like oh so liberal is no matter what genre of arts you look at it's overwhelmingly white it's overwhelmingly male and in terms of classical music often it's additionally economically privileged I'm wondering what has been your experience navigating this new music classical world as an Indian American woman Oh, that's so true. And I am happy you brought that up. I think that it's really true, especially in arts that have some sort of institutional basis, you know, like with classical music, most people end up getting a degree of some sort in the field, and then they might even pursue like a graduate degree. And But a lot of that requires money. A lot of that requires um, just having a sort of background, uh, also just a, a general support system for the arts, which a lot of people of color don't have often. And, and even just me pursuing an engineering degree was part of that, you know. So I think for me, it was challenging in the sense that I didn't know anybody who looked like me, especially of other Indian American artists specifically. I think the first person I met was probably by the end of my undergrad that I another Indian American composer and I was so like shocked <laughs> that I met her but besides that I think it's just that background you know I think for having 
lessons and having that support system is just so much harder as a person of color just because that network isn't there. And then because there are so few role models to even look to because it was so hard for them to even get an opportunity, then it makes it harder for future generations. But I am slowly finding a really wonderful community of artists of color, of other Asian American artists also, who are so making such wonderful things and are really supportive of one another. And I think that that's made me really inspired to be in the field. Well, tell us a little bit about the works you are going to premiere at the Mizzou International Composers Festival next week. Oh, I'm really excited about about this. So I have a few different pieces that are going to be shared. So one is with Alarm Will Sound, who's in residence at the festival. And, and that piece is really fun. It's a remix of Gloria Estefan's Get On Your Feet. Uh, and it's kind of a reaction to the pandemic. And our sense of physicality has really changed being at home and not being in the same physical space as other people. And so it's like almost like a, um, almost like a nightclub vibe, honestly. <laughs> it's a really fun, like 80s piece. And then I also have a piece with Kemia Ensemble, who is also uh, partially in residence. And, and that one is a, um, it's actually a pop song I wrote that is about, um, it's actually about, a lot of the stuff we were talking about, about the way I present myself around other people, especially when I'm in a space with predominantly white people and me feeling like I didn't fit in. And it's a really personal song and, and they're doing a wonderful job with that. And then the final thing I have is with a, a group called Antics Collective. And it's a new collective of composers and artists. And I'm sharing a piece of mine called Redact, which is a video piece I made with a friend of mine, an artist named Zhuen. And it's a, a piece about trauma, actually. It's a really, again, a really personal piece about the way that the brain reacts to trauma. So it's a lot of music, actually, that I've been, I'm sharing next week, but I'm, I'm really excited for the festival. And, you know, all of these musicians are so wonderful. Well, the world premiere of Nina Shaker's work, Turn Your Feet Around, will be performed by Alarm Will Sound in the World Premieres 2 concert on Saturday, the 31st of July. And her other works will be performed in the week running up to that. And you can check out all that information on the Mizzou New Music page. And you can also listen to more of Nina's music on her website at Nina Shaker. And that's S-H-E-K-H-A-R.com. Nina Shaker.com. Nina, you are such a delight to chat with. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you so much, Diana. It was lovely to talk with you. In an era which seems riven by a global sense of them and us, my next composer guest this morning transcends any divide and believes that we can connect culturally diverse people through music that speaks to our mutual passions and values. Xu Ying Li started her musical education in Shanghai and then won a scholarship to finish her undergraduate studies at the University of Hartford in Connecticut. She holds a doctoral degree from the University of Michigan and has been assistant professor of composition and music theory at Gonzaga University since last fall. Her works have been performed by orchestras and ensembles around the world. And in 2017, she founded the Four Corners Ensemble, which last year released an album called World Map, a collection of five mini concertos for quintet written by Xu Ying Li. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Xu Ying. 
Thank you for having me, Diana. Glad to be here. So you come from a culture of truly ancient classical music that goes back 3,000 years. So when we talk about Western classical music, it's pretty modern by Chinese standards. <laughs> what music did you listen to growing up? Oh, that must have been a mixture. I remember I, my mom bought me the first classical music. Back then it was cassette. When I was pretty young, probably six or seven, right around the time I started to learn piano. So that was the, you know, the first classical music um, start. And then I just fell in love. I, I guess that lined up well with my piano training. But then later on, like all the teenagers, I started to listen to pop music, rock music, you know, just all kinds of music. So I would say right now I still, you know, listen to all kinds of music. It's, there's no single genre that I'm, you know, listening to mainly. Did you want to play the piano or was that just expected of you? Did you have a choice of instruments? Oh, yes, that was totally my choice. Um, that was an interesting story. So neither of my parents are musicians. So um, a friend of my dad got me this really small keyboard when I was three or four. And um, nobody really instructed me. And somehow um, my parents one day at one point found out that I was playing some tunes that I was you know, <laughs> singing. <laughs> and they were really shocked. Uh, they were like, how did you know those tunes? I I was like, I don't know. I just, you know, I know how to sing them. So I played them. And then back then, my family did not really have enough financial stability to provide me piano lessons. You got to buy a piano. That's, you know, a lot of money back then. So we waited until I was seven years old. Over the years, I was just begging my parents to buy me a piano because I watched TV. I saw a piano <laughs> uh, on TV. So finally, they, they got the money and then they bought me my first piano. I still remember the brand is um, Pearl River. Um, somehow I saw this brand here occasionally. Pearl River? Uh, Pearl River. So yeah, that was the start of my musical journey. And what about composing? I mean, do you remember the first piece of music you composed? Oh, that would have been pretty late. Officially, I mean, my first official composition came, I think, in my high school when I decided to study music, to pursue music. Before then, I was always just, I had been struggling to decide whether I should pursue, you know, the more normal, so to speak, academic path or the musical path. So um, I finally decided and it involved some <laughs> some fighting with my parents to persuade <laughs> them to uh, agree to let me study music. And then I picked up a first ear training. Um, interestingly enough, there's such a major in China and I happen to have pretty good ears. I had perfect pitch. So they just instructed me to go with ear training because that seemed like a more straightforward path for me. And uh, when taking ear training, examination, we had to also learn composition. And that was when I discovered my passion for composing. Because compared to ear training, composing is so much more fun. <laughs> um, you actually create things and you hear your own music. So pretty much soon I, yeah, that was my in my high school, I started composing and I made into Shanghai Conservatory, majoring in ear training and minoring in composition. And that was when I decided, um, I want to just focus on composition entirely and transfer to the hard school in Connecticut. Tell me a little bit more about ear training. I mean, I understand what you mean. You are learning to 
to write and to play music without looking at any notes because you're listening to it by ear. Tell me more about what they teach you in ear training at school. So in my case, when you are in ear training major, that's the most advanced level. We, it was divided into two parts. One is listening. We would listen to really complicated harmonies and, and four voices, a fugue even, you know, four different voices independently going on and you have to write down everything you heard. And then one is singing, which you, that with oral skill, you pick up a piece and you start singing. We would have, would have progressed to atonal if I had stayed. Um, so that was the more advanced year training path if you know, one is studying year training major. Do you learn to read music as well? Or is that discouraged? Uh, yeah, I learned to. I, but I learned to read music when, when I started to play piano. So that always came pretty naturally for me. Well, I want to ask you about a piece of music that you were commissioned to write for the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra in New York and which premiered at none other than Carnegie Hall. You wrote a work called Out Came the Sun, which was inspired by both the joy of the birth of your first child and also the pain of postpartum depression. Tell me about writing that work. Oh, sure. So that was a pretty personal piece for me. Um, I had my son, Leo, in 2016. And uh, that was the first time I experienced, so to speak, depression um, ever. So um, uh, the first week of being a new mother was just absolutely a bliss. Um, but what I did not anticipate were later on the dark emotions pretty soon, I would imagine, within a few days. And those developed rapidly after he was born. So suddenly I was in tears all the time for no reason. And, you know, I had these feelings of mourning, anxiety and loss. Mm. So that kind of really overwhelmed me. Um, luckily, those baby blues went away pretty soon within, I would say, three weeks. So gradually my tears dried out and I started being able to trust the joy of being a new mother and I did some research. Um, I saw, according to American Pregnancy Association, around 80% of women experience various postpartum mood swings uh, or depression. So um, although this depression lasted for a really short time, but this experience was so profound that I felt compelled to compose a work about it. So there came, out came the sun. I think many, as you say, 80%, many mothers are both surprised and anguished by postpartum depression. I wonder what reaction you've had from other mothers when they listen to the work and how you feel when you hear it played. Oh, I was really moved by how many people came to me after the premiere telling me, you know, they really appreciate me writing the piece. They had the similar experience. They felt same. And that was the purpose of this piece. I just wanted to raise awareness of postpartum depression because oftentimes we focus on the newborn. Like I wrote lullabies for him even before he was born. Like traditionally my culture would tell me, you know, nothing's more important than taking care of the new baby. But I think it is very important for us as new mothers to also make sure we are doing okay. We're, we're seeking enough support to be able to 
to share the, the new role of the, the mother. Well, I want to play a clip of music from the album called World Map, which you produced with the Four Corners Ensemble. Tell us a little bit about the works on the album as a whole and then about the track we're going to play called The Dryad. So um, this whole album was the first major project I did with my ensemble. Originally, uh, each member of the ensemble was from a different country. So in, in the process of working closely with them, I tailored this set of mini concerto, chamber concertos for each one of them, focusing on their unique cultural, geographical, and even personal identities. And later, this whole album became a, an exploration of multiculture. Um, so yeah, each concerto, for example, we have Australia, China, United States, Korea, well, in this case, both South and North Korea. And the European side our representation is the dryad, as you mentioned, a draw inspiration from Anderson's fairy tale, The Dryad, as well as Schubert's art song, The Lindenbaum, The Linden Tree. So we combine the German and the Denmark influence in this work. I quoted music from Schubert's art song, so it, it's more depicting the story of this ride leaving its hometown, seeking a new home, and then this entire journey of settling down in the new place. Well, let's take a listen. This is a clip from The Dryad, written by my guest this morning, Xu Ying Li, inspired by the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale of the same name.
So, Shiying, for the Mizzou International Composers Festival, you're going to be premiering a work called Sweeping and Weeping, which gets played in the Saturday evening World Premieres 2 concert. What can you tell us about that work? So, this work was written in April 2020, last year. So, when the pandemic first hit, uh, in the you know, most suddenly way. So in an effort to find positivity when everything was canceled, postponed, or shut down, I had had a line of performances back then, and all of them were gone, just like mm. instantly. So I initially thought of sweeping as a representation of the storm that took over our lives in the most unexpected way, and weeping as a very initial reaction to our losses. Just as most of my pieces um, sweeping and weeping took off from the initial inspiration as the music itself navigated a way out uh, with its own logic. That's how I see music. I um, uh, The composer, I take, I take certain control, but oftentimes the music would have its own path. So this work um, explores, I would say, rhythmic drive, lyrical tension and release, and different timbres and colors in an alteration between fast and slow passages that ultimately mingled into one. Well, I always love listening to all of the world premieres in this festival. They're always so exciting. You can find out more about Xu Ying Li's long list of achievements and hear her music on her website at xuyingli.com. And that's spelled S-H-U-Y-I-N-G-L-I, xuyingli.com. Xu Ling, thank you so much for your music and for today's chat. Thank you so much for having me. Composer Selka Ojakangas was born in Springfield, Missouri, has a mad scientist dad who is also a jazz trombonist, and her music is known for being witty and incorporating quirky musical elements. She's written an opera about gender bias and sexism in the man's world of the video gaming industry, a work based on the sounds of a Pentecostal service, and a piece inspired by her physics teacher father, amongst others. She's a violist in symphonies, jazz and rock bands, has had her work commissioned and performed by dance and opera companies as well as symphonies and ensembles, and she is currently completing her doctoral degree at the University of Southern California. I feel like I should say welcome home, Selka, as you are a Missouri composer. Yeah, I am. And it is interesting. Um, I'm bad at clarifying this. I was born in Texas, but I was raised in Springfield, Missouri. Like I moved there when I was maybe four or three, but I was raised, I am definitely a Missouri girl. I'm really happy to be supporting the new music initiative in Missouri. And so it's super cool. Yeah, we're definitely claiming you as, as one of ours. That's good. That's <laughs> said, great. Said I the English it. girl. Yeah. <laughs> So there is a belief that somehow creating art involves a struggle that, as one author said, writing is easy. All you have to do is sit and stare at a blank sheet of paper until the drops of blood form on your forehead. <laughs> but I, I sense from your works that your artistic process has fun as its central tenet. What is composing like for you? It's so interesting because, you know, in my studies, I've learned that some people compose by preparing a blueprint for their work or, you know, what they know based on form. And I am a very, in my process, I'm very improvisational, which means I just 
start and I see where it goes. And sometimes I get really stuck because that's definitely not always the best way to compose. And then, <laughs> then I will use what I learned about form and everything to inform it. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting because more than once someone has asked me, um, how did you do the form for this piece? And I'm like, man, I don't know. I just did it. <laughs> so it's just fun. It's it's like putting a paintbrush to a canvas. It's It's like, okay, now here's the blank slate and I'm going to fill it with stuff and I'm also going to fill it with things that I like and I know that the people that I'm working with possibly like and that's my goal with the piece that I have written for Alarm Will Sound. I don't know if they like, you know, I'm being a little presumptive here, but (laughs) I love writing fun music. It's an absolute joy when I see the musicians that I'm working with enjoy it. That's the way I like to be and, you know, me as a musician myself I know how much fun it is to play music that's fun. And uh, it's also humbling to play the work of composers that gives you joy. And it's like, oh, well, maybe I could do the same thing. But I'm trying. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as my arts reporting colleague Eric Danielson wrote in the Columbia Daily Tribune last year, you take molecular musical quirks and explode them. Tell me about your love of musical quirks. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was really cool because I love someone describing my music for me. Sometimes I'm not really sure how it is. But uh, the musical quirks thing, yeah. So I often start with a a nugget of information in my mind and I I explode on it. I think that's a great thing. It's like um, I'll take a motive and I'll recycle it in my brain and it goes to different places and sometimes it expands and sometimes it contracts. And I guess when I'm writing my music, I definitely have motives for different sections that basically uh, they're the backbone of that section. Another molecular quirk is I like some string techniques or, you know, other bizarre techniques that can inform the way the music's supposed to sound. Um, I like, you know, in my revival piece, there's glissandi. And uh, in my opera, I had chiptune sounds and... Usually those sounds also help inform the notational, the tone component. I'll end up at it from those musical quirks. So maybe I've explained that well. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, back in 2019, you were one of seven female composers to receive a grant of $15,000 from Opera America to develop your opera called Mirror Game, which received its premier performance at Portland State University in November 2019. Tell us a little bit about Mirror Game. Yeah, that started as a collaboration. So, you know, one thing I would love to maintain as an artist is I love to collaborate with people. And it started as a collaboration with my librettist, Amy Punt, and she's a fantastic author. And basically, she was the one that was like, hey, you want to apply for this grant? Let's write an opera together. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's do it. So she, you know, we tried to have a feminist approach to it. She had some things she was really interested in. One of them was uh, the story of Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know if you know about her, but she's an ex-CEO of a company that promised to be able to do tests all with just one drop of blood. And it turned out that she never had the product to begin with. Right. And so it's sort of interesting that opera ended up exploring feminism also as affected by capitalism, trying to get to the top by being I mean, one thing is the character loses her morality in the process of becoming someone at the top of the video game industry. And um, 
it ends up not being too great for her and she loses people in the process. So, uh, I don't know. It was, it was very intriguing for me because, uh, it was probably one of the first times as a female composer exploring, um, do I need to be aggressive? Do I have to, you know, there's a lot of things that I hadn't considered as an up and coming composer, being a woman, uh, all the, the dance that we play with different people, in the music world. And I think that the music world has treated me very well, but also it helped me recognize some parts that I wasn't so treated well by. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. Opera can feel a little remote to a lot of younger audiences. Yet this is a work that absolutely speaks to current issues in the gaming industry and things that younger people are interested in. Talk to me about writing an opera for your generation and, and what motifs you included to make it more accessible to people? I did my best. Um, so <laughs> as I said, there's a, there's chiptune sounds. So um, the opera premiere didn't have a full group, but it had a piano and we got uh, three patches for the piano that would work to emulate the sound of one of a normal operatic accompaniment for on piano, and then one that was, a, when I say chiptune, the retro video game sound, something that's very identifiable. And then I had like an otherworldly, like if you took the piano and added a lot of reverb to it. So the chiptune thing, I wrote themes in the opera that were inspired by video games like Pokemon or Legend of Zelda. There's that in there. But um, then I also incorporated a lot of motifs that to me sounded poppy. Some of them were based on like Alanis Morissette, which, you know, maybe is older now. Uh, Some of them were just motifs that I came up on my own that sounded um, a little funky or a little groovy or something. And one thing about my opera that is it's very rhythmical. A lot of lines turn on the dime and Maybe some people would listen to it and go, oh, maybe that's not what I wanted to hear in an opera. But for me, it's like, that's sort of the way my mind works is, you know, we're chugging along. And also it's supposed to sound sort of video gamey. And there's a lot of that in video games. So <laughs> so those are your quirky musical motifs coming through in, in that work. Definitely. And I mean, a lot of people, I mean, my some of my friends said that it was quite groovy. And that's, that's what I that's like. Good. <laughs> it's good. Um, you know, it was interesting trying to address the more serious moments because then I'm like, okay, what am I going to do at this part where she's falling apart? Maybe I'll, then I'll use my, as I said before, I'll use my doctoral knowledge to bring in something different, but I'm always referencing composers in some way. There's a little bit of Addis in there, but I bet no one could tell (laughs) and some other composers. So, well, I I want to play a clip of your music, and the one that you chose is your work based on the sounds of Pentecostalism, which was interesting to me because I did a radio, a BBC radio feature on speaking in tongues, and I went to a Pentecostal church, and it was so chaotic that I just stood there with a microphone and hoped for the best. And so your work completely speaks to that moment. Give us a brief intro to this work, and then we'll play a short clip. Yeah, so... Since I first wrote my description, I said it's sort of a maximalist experiment. I try to throw in everything but the kitchen sink. But uh, the main things to focus on for this piece, and maybe you won't be able to hear them in the clip that we presented, one is that there's a 
there is a trumpet that's acting as a preacher on a soapbox, and the trumpet is playing an aleatoric line. When I say aleatoric, it's pre-written, and it's all plunger music, so it's supposed to sound like talking. But um, it's played out of time with the orchestra. So the orchestra is playing to meter, and this trumpet is just expected to start and stop at certain spots, either, you know, cued by the conductor or as what happened in that performance, cued by his friends by them tapping on his leg to stop playing. So so that was sort of the original intent I had. I had that musical quirk, and then I had the musical quirk of the Pentecostal... was just a short clip of Revival by my guest, Silka Ojakangas. So for your Mizzou International Composers Festival world premiere, you have written a work called Sploopy, which will be performed by Alarm Will Sound in the first of the world premiere evenings next Tuesday, July the 27th. I love the name. Can you just tell us a little bit about Sploopy? (laughs) Yeah, so... I purposely was trying to think of a a word that sort of sounded like a goopy swamp monster. And that's (laughs) that is sort of where this piece is going. It's like it's inspired by Creature from the Black Lagoon. If you look at the program notes, like I basically listened to the soundtrack and halfway quoted it, but not really. But I did some orchestration from it. And then I incorporated some of the funky stuff of Charles Mingus's moaning is so cool. And I felt like it was appropriate in the context of this piece as well. And he also has written stuff that is like children's kind of kooky, spooky music. So uh, what, where am I going with this? Sploopy is supposed to be like the boogeyman. And, you know, it's so campy and cheesy. And <laughs> like, it's a soundtrack that's very overdone. And uh, I mean, like, it's as in like, you know, for what's happening in the film, There's always the cheesy string hits and stuff. And, you know, I was just sort of feeling like that that spoke to me. One thing is my mom kept quoting that growing up, like one of the parts from Creature of the Black Lagoon. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll finally, I'll put that in a piece. Well, I shall rewatch it before I listen to your world premiere. Then I'll be ready for Sploopy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, also the, I mean, the name is purposely to tell people like, hey, I mean, yeah, this is supposed to be cool and weird and stuff, but don't take it too seriously, obviously. You know, I I like picking weird names for my pieces, so. Well, Selka Ojakangas was one of the composers selected for the cancelled 2020 Composers Festival. Well, not cancelled, but changed to a light festival and instead makes her debut next week for the 2021 festival. You can hear more of her music on her website at Selka. Net, and that's C-E-L-K-A. And Selka, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Certainly. Thank you. Thanks. That was a fun interview. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, Mizzou New Music Initiative Managing Director Jacob Gottlieb and composers Nina Shaker, Xu Ying Li and Selka Ojakangas. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri. Mm-hmm.